When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back on the College Football Survivor Show. We're doing coach rankings. This is not particularly inventive, but if everybody else is going to do it, we can do it. And it does tell you something about our thinking about the best coaches and best programs in college football. And if you listen to this podcast, that probably matters to you. Shahan at CBSSports.com, you guys did a group ranking, which sort of led us to doing this ourselves because you had to do this ranking all the best coaches in college football. We're doing our top 10 here. People can go read the list at CBSSports.com. Can you tell us a little bit about who voted on that, how you guys did that? The one thing I like about that is I don't know how many years in a row you guys have done that now, but you at least did it last year. So within the when you guys have the rankings and you're writing them out, you're saying, okay, this guy moved up, this guy moved down, which I think is always valuable. What was it like doing it at CBSSports.com? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, this is a big project that we do every year. This always ends up being a, a hot topic of conversation, I think. I, I think that we put out one of the more definitive lists uh, that, that people release over an offseason. And like you said, I mean, our entire team votes on it. We actually... We did expand our team actually this year. So that will, I think, skew the numbers a little bit that we had some realignments, I guess, on our team. And so some new voters may be coming into the fray. But it's still, I think, pretty instructive, like you said, to, to compare this year versus last year. Tom Fornelli does a great job of putting together, uh, putting together our list, uh, based on our ballots and then also putting analysis for all of it. So, uh, definitely, you know, look, I have my ballot. It's, not the same as the final list that came together. I was, uh, I, I disagreed vehemently on a couple of these. One that I'll mention, and, and maybe we'll talk about a few of these more later. I thought that Jonathan Smith over at Oregon State just got wildly disrespected. He ended up at number 32 on the list. I had him at number 12 because he won 10 games at Oregon State. Oregon State, like, I. Now, obviously, I think that one of the things whenever we we talk about these criteria is trying to balance the idea of winning at the highest level, right? Competing for national championships versus where you're at. What is success at the program that you're at? And for me, for example, when you look at Oregon State, winning 10 games is not just good success. It's like unprecedented wild success. And I probably value that more than some other voters who may be valued, uh, you know, winning at the highest level, no matter what program you're at or no matter what outside context there is. So that's one of the things, though, is that because we have a bunch of voters, it does normalize things a little bit. It means that there's lots of different people with lots of different perspectives coming together. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, what's the phrase wisdom of the masses, right? I, I think that this is in some ways that where you do have an opportunity to uh, to kind of get all of those thoughts together. And maybe at the end, you come up with a little bit of a real consensus. I don't know Tom Fornelli personally, but I was reading some of his 
write-ups for the different coaches. And I appreciated them because he was yelling at you guys as voters in some of them. Oh, and yeah. I was like, oh, oh yeah. no, yeah, that's that's what I would do if I was writing that up. <laughs> in particular, Matt Campbell from Iowa State was 35th on your list. And he was screaming at people about why is Matt Campbell this low? Matt Campbell dropped 12 spots on the CBS Sports list. Here's what he wrote. Okay, here's how these rankings work. When you win more games than you should at a school, nobody expects to win a lot of games. You rocket up the rankings. But if you dare have one subpar season and fail to live up to the expectations you set, you will be punished severely. Campbell is the latest example. So what if he's responsible for the most successful run in program history? He went 4-8 and eight last year. He stinks now. Just in case it isn't clear, I am not criticizing Campbell with these comments. I'm criticizing my colleagues. I thought that was <laughs> hilarious because to me, Jonathan Smith is in the Matt Campbell spot right yes, now, yes, right? Yes. That Matt Campbell was everybody's favorite guy. There were even people on podcasts once upon a time picking Iowa State <laughs> to make the playoff. I can't remember. I heard someone do that. And then and then they did have a disappointing year. And it's like, well, that's it. Right. So Jonathan, is, Jonathan Smith is hot right now. It is hard to compare hey, you're winning at a program that kind of wins all the time versus you seem singularly responsible right. for your program being even respectable. And now you're more than respectable, which is what Iowa State did a couple of years ago, which is what Oregon State did now. But I do think it's funny. I, I think Tom's right, right, that we like to rank guys like Matt Campbell and Jonathan Smith high when they're hot, but sometimes we don't give them a lot of margin for error. Sure. And I will mention Matt Campbell is number 16 on my list. It's a disparity of 19 spots, which is second only to Jonathan Smith uh, of all the coaches that I ranked. You know, my thing is because I think anybody can have a good year, right? Like not, I mean, obviously there's even more context, but like Tom Allen, right? Tom Allen put together a great season during the pandemic in 2020 and he deserved credit for that. And he, I think, moved up into like the top 35 for putting together a great season during the pandemic. And then everything collapsed. And the the reality is when you have four or five years of track record and only one of those things is good, that's not good enough. You know, having that high isn't good enough. But Matt Campbell, Jonathan Smith, this is not one year things. This is multi year builds. This is multiple years of success. Matt Campbell, you know, we're talking about four years of uh, or five years of winning at least seven games at Iowa State and obviously finishing first in the Big 12 during the 2020 season. And, and the funny thing to me is people are obviously going to look at Iowa State's four and eight and say that was the disappointing season. I kind of had them there because they lost everybody from their 2021 team. The 2021 team is actually the disappointing one because they brought everybody back from a 2020 team that played in the Big 12 title game and then went seven and six. So again, everybody approaches this thing sort of differently. Um, you know, uh, I, I think that without saying too much, some people have a little bit more of a national view of college football than maybe some of the other people who vote on this list. Uh, I, I hope that that's subtle enough, but I, I definitely think that Matt Campbell and the Jonathan Smiths, you have to look at track record. It's not just a one year thing. I, I think that we can be prisoners of the moment sometimes. And when you've coached at a place for six years like Matt Campbell, it's not a one year evaluation period. Yeah. And there are guys, for instance, I, I think maybe the best example of this, Gene Chizik went undefeated and won a national championship at Auburn in 2010. I don't think anybody should have said, well, that makes Gene Chizik the best coach in college football because in his career as a head coach, he's 24 and 38. 
in the five other seasons other than the 14 and 0 season when he just said here Cam Newton and Cam Newton said I got this and basically won a national championship by himself. So there are things like that where this shouldn't and can't be just a list of the best teams, but it kind of is. So it's hard. How else are you supposed to judge people other than by success on the field? And you end up saying, what do I think? And I, I've long been interested in like a, a real project of trying to establish maybe for every power five team in the country, what are you supposed to be? Let's find out what based on history, geography, recruiting, demographics, conference affiliation, everything else, what should you be? And then you set that guideline and then you can evaluate people good year, great year, bad year, horrible year, average year. Because, you know, going seven and five at Iowa State isn't the same thing as going seven and five at Georgia or or seven and five at Kansas. Right. So, I mean, like we, we have to have that. Kind of, people know that. We know what you're talking about. Let's get to our list. We're going to start at number one. I will say this. Does it feel to you like there is a big seven or big eight? of college football head coaches right now that the people listening right now, if we said name the big seven, name the big eight, they would be able to do it. Do you think it's that clearly defined? Well, um, l- let me say this. I, I'm going to get some tweets from people in the city of Columbus, I think, after mm. this uh, after this list, because I would consider there to be a big six. And you even the way you acknowledge that you're not trolling. You're not no, trolling. No, you're just no. saying you acknowledge that maybe your opinion doesn't match up with the consensus. So we'll have plenty of time for conversation on that list. But yes. Do you think generally in college football and I'm probably a little low on one guy, which is why I'm seven and eight do, saying an eight because he's not quite in my top eight. Do you think there's a big eight consensus? I think there's a seven. I, I am curious who you think the who, who you would consider the eight. I have a guy who's probably higher than most. So it probably okay. is a big seven. Okay. 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 Let's go to number one. Has this guy been the number one coach in college football for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. I think it's either 12 years or 14 years that Nick Saban has been the number one coach in college football is he still in your mind right now oh yeah i mean i know obviously there are guys pushing for his spot right now and this is a now ranking obviously your accolades matter but it is also what you do in this moment so i do think that maybe in 2024 depending how things go we can have a real conversation about who in this moment ends up on the top of the list but it's still just so overwhelming right now that I, I think that Nick Saban is still number one on my list. The way I do this is I try to imagine good program X and I'm hiring a head coach for like the next three years, let's say. I'm not looking for a decade, so I'm not penalizing older guys. I'm not looking for one year. So I'm not saying like, hey, you know, give me uh, the ghost of Bear Bryant for one year. It's like, well, I need you for a couple years, but like I'm making a hire and maybe enough that you do have to recruit. So I am thinking recruiting. I'm thinking culture. I'm thinking scheme. I'm thinking leadership. And at a place where you have the ability to win, and now you want to win at the highest level. So that does affect if I'm judging Jonathan Smith or Matt Campbell, Matt Campbell or Lance Leipold, and I'm saying like, well, would I hire them if I'm trying to win a national championship above some of these other guys? 
And maybe that's not fair because they've never been at it. Lance Lightbold's not going to win a national championship at Kansas. Jonathan Smith's not going to win a national me, championship Lance at Oregon Lightbold State. Lance is a six-time national champion. Six times. I know. I'm sorry. I used a poor <laughs> – so that – so, I, like, is that fair? I, I don't know, but I'm I'm not – you know, I'm, I'm when I think about it in my head – of course, if you're at a big school and succeeding, that moves you up the list a little bit because you've already have the opportunity that now me, I at Program X, I'm going to give you that opportunity. I was looking at 13 and 15 year old Bleacher Report coach rankings, which made my <laughs> eyeballs bleed. Back in the slideshow day, it is just gigantic photos of a hundred coaches. And then little blurbs with no analysis and no expertise in them. I don't know who these Bleacher Report people are. I, I, I was one of them. I, I was one of them back in the day. But I was in high school. You were seriously doing Bleacher Report stuff in high school? Oh, yeah. I was a Chicago Bulls featured columnist when I was 16. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know anything? Are you kidding me? Did you know anything? I knew some stuff. But, yeah, I mean, obviously. No, see, the, the thing is, right, because, like, they let basically anybody publish articles there. I at least had the great privilege of getting paid zero dollars to be assigned articles. That is unbelievable. I we will do an hour long podcast <laughs> on Shahan, the 16 year old Chicago Bulls columnist from Texas, unpaid, squeezing in Bulls analysis in between his uh, geometry homework. And my mom hated that. My mom hated that. Wow. Wow. Bleacher Report in a lot of ways can suck it. So uh, like that, they just found random people, paid them nothing and were like, can you do a hundred slide thing with like the, any person who this is and it's one of those things. The AI stuff that's happening right now makes me nauseous. Yep. And but it's like, well, if it's replacing that, if it's replacing unpaid teenagers, <laughs> then I don't know. Like, maybe that's fine because couldn't the AI do close to what 16-year-old Shahan J. Haraja's analysis of the Bulls was? Or, or would you, are you offended by that idea that AI could do what you could do when you were a sophomore in high school? Oh, no, no, no. I, I think that I definitely did a better job than that. Uh, the thing is, right, <clears throat> not to get into my AI rant, AI is fully reflective. It doesn't create something new. Now, you know, look, I actually had uh, an old Bleach Report article of mine go viral on Reddit uh, like two or three years ago because it asked, uh, it was like, which players in the league right now, this was in like 2011, will never reach their potential. And I, uh, I had Steph Curry on that list. <laughs> and my argument, to be fair, was because of injuries. Remember, early in his career, he was like always injured. But obviously that was pretty funny. And AI could not have done that. AI could not have come up with a list as funny as that. <laughs> as wrong as that. <laughs> exactly. I'm better than a robot because I predicted on my way to prom that Steph Curry would stink for his whole life. So I'm better than a robot. That is not persuasive, Shahan. That is not I mean, where's the lie, though? We Robots aren't getting old takes exposed. We're going to just lose that whole industry? Come on now. I do not think Patrick Mahomes will reach his potential. Uh, okay, I, so. I, I was in on Patrick Mahomes. Let's just be clear. Oh, man. So. This old Bleacher Report thing, I found one from September 10th. No, September 2010, going into the 2010 season. So Saban has 
a national has his first national title under his belt at that point in 09. And this Bleach Report, maybe you know him, maybe you saw him at prom, this Bleach Report writer, had Saban first on that list. And then I saw another list going into the 2011 season, and this might have been a guy who was at a rival high school going to his prom, and he had Saban seventh after like they didn't win the national title in 2010. And that list in 2011 was Bob Stoops, Jim Trestle, Mac Brown, Gene Chizik, Frank Beamer, Chip Kelly, Nick Saban. Because Gene Chizik had just won a national title by saying, here, Cam Newton, please save me. And that guy was like, well, that guy, Gene Chizik, I'll tell you, Nick Saban could never do that. So it's like, OK. So anyway, my point is Saban had a national title at LSU, a split national title. He comes to Alabama. He wins one in 09. I think starting in, in 10, he's in the conversation because before it's probably Urban Meyer and like in, in, the, in the list in 10, it's, it's Saban one, Meyer two, Jim Trestle three. And then once he wins the second title, and so that's in the 11 season, now you're going into 12, any list of the best coach in, co- started in college football, starting in the 2012 season, Nick Saban's number one. And I yes. still think yes. we're at the no doubt about it part of that with Nick Saban. Whereas I, I do think it is fascinating, the comparison between Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, what they've done in their parallel careers, both with the Cleveland Browns, now here they are. I don't think... You'd have Bill Belichick number one right now anymore. I think Belichick has, and I don't know if he's still like. Obviously, I don't want to have a Belichick Brady conversation on this podcast, but but Belichick feels like he's on the other side and on the way down. Where if you were, I mean, he's still top ten, maybe top five. I don't know that anybody's saying there's no doubt about it. Bill Belichick is the guest best coach in the NFL. I still think that's where most of college football is with Nick Saban, right? Do you think there would be really hardcore arguments from people saying, oh, that's ridiculous. Nick Saban can't be number one. I mean, in to, to reference number two, obviously Nick Saban has not won back-to-back titles since 2012, right? And I think that's the only time he's done it is 2011 and 2012. And Kirby Smart has back-to-back. So, I mean, I think that a lot of people will make that case. I think that at this point, it's still premature for what Nick Saban's done over a great number of years. And and to be clear, nobody is. I mean, Nick Saban is the greatest coach of all time. I don't even think there's a discussion at this point. Uh, I don't even think there's a discussion with Bear Bryant or Newt Rockney or anybody. I think Nick Saban's the greatest. There, I think if Alabama has another, by their standards, underwhelming season next year, maybe we can have a conversation about the here and now. but. I, I think it's still too early, even though Kirby Smart has two titles. All right. We're in agreement on that then. Nick Saban is number one, and he was number one on the CBS Sports list, which is going to lead us to number two and is going to lead us to a conversation that I actually, for real, don't think is going to be all that fun. I feel like we have to have it, and we will have it next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Doug and Shahan are back with our rankings of the 10 best coaches in college football. Who's number two for you? Yeah, I mean, it's Kirby Smart, two-time national champion, won the last two national championships. Uh, I, I think that what he is doing right now is downright scary for college football. Obviously, they land the commitment of the number one player in 2024, Dylan Rayola at quarterback. So I don't think that this is stopping anytime soon. I think that when you look at the programs right now 
that are functioning higher than anybody else in college football. I, I think Georgia probably is number one right now. Now that that's a snapshot of this moment, of course, but I think that Georgia right now is the it program in college football and Kirby smart is the reason why. So having covered the Ohio state Georgia semifinal, I just getting sort of the first time I was really around Kirby smart up close and personal. I thought ingenuity. I thought culture. I thought, uh, motivation, structure. I just thought, man, this guy has a lot of stuff in place. You know, they're talking about doing yoga. They're talking about like the way they start off practices and how they try to do this and the coaches they have assigned to this. And it was just like, man, this guy has really thought this out. And as I think about, so I do think there's a big eight, but I think six of the eight have a ding. And I have Kirby Smart seventh, and this is the only reason why. And I think we have to talk about it. A player died this offseason. And I think that's not Kirby Smart's fault, of course. But I have questions about the off-field culture at Georgia right now. There seems to be, to me, to be a street racing culture at Georgia that at least previously did exist that led to the death of a current player in a car being driven by a drunk staff member of the football program. And of all the things in my 20 years covering college football that we have all gotten wound up about, all the little NCAA violations, all the, the oh, this guy said this, or did this guy not penalize a player enough? A player died in the car of a member of the program while racing the best player on the team. There's another great player on the team who was stopped for street racing. There were other instances that the cops have talked about. And I still feel like it has not been enough of a discussion in college football. And it feels like to me, there have been things along the way in college football that were minuscule compared to this, that were much bigger deals. Now, and we have, unfortunately, have had other deaths associated with college football programs. We had a player at Maryland die during a workout. DJ Durkin, very rightfully so, lost his job for that. We had a staff member killed at Notre Dame because he was up in a tower in a storm at a practice and it fell over and he was killed. That's, I don't know that that's anybody's fault, but when you're the head coach, you're sort of in charge of everything. But this is a cultural issue to me. Shahan, and I don't think it is unfair to include that in a ranking like this. And it's not fun. It's May. Hey, let's talk about college football. Whoop do do do. It's almost time for games. But this is real life, and this is culture. This is leadership. This is responsibility. This is all those things. And I feel like it has sort of slipped past everything. I don't know why. I really don't know why. Because it feels like it was a Jalen Carter issue because Jalen Carter was the player who was involved in the racing in the other car when, when this player died and this staff member who was drunk and was driving died. And it became like a Jalen Carter draft position issue. And it feels like to me it has not been a Kirby Smart Georgia football culture issue. And I think it is. And I certainly am not satisfied with the answers. And Kirby Smart says, oh, it's not. He gave like one interview about it. So if I'm going to ding, right, I have a list of if it's the big eight and it's like, hey, these are all good coaches. Well, this is a big thing to me. So I'm going to put them at the bottom of the top tier. 
And if this didn't happen, this happened after their celebration. If you had asked me to do this list the day after the national championship game, I might have Kirby Smart first. Because for all the things we said about Saban, I don't think anything about what Kirby Smart has done is a fluke. I think he understands this program top to bottom. I think he thinks about everything, which then to me is like, he don't, like he's not oblivious to an issue like this, but somehow it kept going on. This guy is in control of everything, Shahan. So I just felt like we needed to do this. And I'm not trying to, I don't know what I'm not trying to do. It affects my view of Kirby Smart. And I think it should affect people's views of Kirby Smart and the Georgia football program. So if we're talking about, hey, I'm ADX, I'm President X, and I'm looking to hire one of these guys for the next three years to get my program over the top, it would affect my hiring decision. Because the other guys who I have ahead of her, Kirby Smart, are also very good football coaches and don't have this. How, what, what do you think of this? Is this not – it's not fun, but it's real. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and I think, uh, you know, actually just last week, another player was arrested uh, on suspicion of DUI. So this is not an issue that he seems to have resolved in the months since then either. And then even, uh, you know, as a transfer player, you know, it's, it's, it's hard whenever you have a transfer to, to sort of assign blame, I guess. But, uh, you know, Mississippi State transfer Rara Thomas was arrested on a suspicion of domestic violence. Right. So this is this is not a small number of incidents. And the thing is, you know, we, we have the actual tragedy. But you look at all the stats about drunk driving and things like that. Usually somebody who has a DUI or has an accident like this, they've driven drunk multiple times. They've street raced multiple times whenever this happened. So this is the incident that obviously caused somebody to lose a life, but it probably wasn't the first time. And so, no, I mean, it's it's an uncomfortable conversation that probably does need to be had. I, I think you're right. You know, we even, you know, we like you said, it became a Jalen Carter discussion because it became an NFL discussion because it became a draft positioning discussion. Uh, you know, I, I think that even, you know, not not to draw a comparison because they're different situations. But, you know, I mean, I think that it's even like when you look at Alabama with the Brandon Miller situation, so much of it is about just gets transferred to the guy because it's about the draft and it's about the future and it's about the NBA. And it's like. Jalen Carter was one piece of many pieces in that discussion. And, uh, you know, I, I think that certainly he deserves a level of accountability for it which I think that, you know, to some extent he's had. But you're right. I mean, it was a University of Georgia staffer, somebody who works for Kirby Smart, driving drunk and killing a student. That's that that does feel like it has been a little glossed over with, with by the way, something a, a car that was rented by the university. That's the other part of it, too. So, you know, I think uh, I, I think it's a very valid point. Um you know, I, I I think for me, it's something that more I'm keeping a very close eye on, maybe than something that I'm defining right now. But, you know, I, I think, again, the fact that they had somebody arrested for a DUI last week. I mean, come on, guys, come on. If there's one thing in college football right now, that shouldn't happen. It's a player at the University of Georgia driving drunk, of, of all things. And so... No, I, I think it's a good point. I think it's something to keep an eye on. I mean, for goodness sake, Kirby, like, y you live in Athens, Georgia. Like, 
you can you can create a fleet of Ubers to get these guys from place to place if you want to. I, I've seen your recruiting budget. You've got the money for it. So I, I do think that this is going to be something to keep a close eye on. And and you know what? I, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that Kirby Smart and the University of Georgia and this program have been held accountable enough for what happened in a lot of ways. So I'm not saying anybody who has Kirby Smart one or two, whatever is wrong. I just I, I factored it in. So let's move on to who I have number two, who maybe is not part of the the big seven. And I have Kyle Whittingham of Utah too. Number two. Wow. And this is why. Everybody else, I have a ding. Everybody below him. I don't know what the ding on Kyle Whittingham is right now. Utah has made the Pac-12 championship game each of the last four seasons that wasn't a COVID year. That wasn't a jacked up COVID year. They've won the last two. Last year, they beat USC twice when it felt like USC was the best team in the Pac-12. The year before, they beat Oregon twice when it felt like Oregon was the best team in the Pac-12. He has it rolling. He's been doing it for two decades. And I think if you took Kyle Whittingham and dropped him at USC or Georgia or Michigan or Florida State or Ohio State, I'm not. I think he'd be ready to win national titles. I think this is a top-to-bottom coach. Leadership, motivation, scheme, culture, structure, everything. And he has made Utah something that really Utah should not be. And I don't know right now. Now, listen, it, like they're at a peak right now that outside the COVID year, the last three years, they finished 16, 12, and 10 in the final AP poll, that's really good. But he's also 154 and 74 in his 19 years at Utah. Like, this is real. Even when he's bad, they don't have losing seasons. He's only had two losing seasons in that in, in two decades, basically. So I think he's a guy that people like to put 11th, 8th. Hey, Kyle Whittingham. Don't forget Kyle Whittingham. And at this point, I'm like, well, what? Why isn't he why isn't he higher than that? Because when we get to all the other guys, I'll say I like everything about this guy, but 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 I don't have a Kyle but I don't like what's the what's the thing that you would ding Kyle Whittingham on that would maybe make you question why I don't know that he's a national title coach right now. And that to me doesn't mean he's gonna win a national title at Utah. Well, I mean, I don't know, probably not. But if you dropped him at one of the five or eight best programs in the country, why couldn't he win a national title there? No, it's a really good question. I think for me, uh, I have Kyle Whittingham eighth, so I, I, which I think is very <laughs> giving him a lot of respect too, right? Like I think that I consider him one of the best coaches in the entire country. I think the question, and part of this comes down to, I guess, how much, how you see the University of Utah, I guess you could say. Um, and, and what this job is and what it, I mean, cause one thing that I think is a little bit of context for me, not, not everything, but a little bit of context is, you know, in 2004, Urban Meyer had this program at number four in the country at 12 and 0. Right. And, and so I think that just complicates things for me. Cause I do maybe think that this is a program that can win at a high level. Uh, but all that said, I mean, Kyle Whittingham's done it. He's won 10 games all these times. Uh, they, they've obviously won 10 games three times in the last four years. Like you mentioned, they've competed for the conference. They've won the last two conference championships. 
I, I think that like, and this is not a knock. This is just like when I'm comparing them uh, against literally Kirby Smart and Dabo Swinney and Jim Harbaugh is I think that they've come slightly short of competing at the very highest level. You know, they, I, I mean, even last year, right, they kind of backed their way into the Pac-12 title game, which again, this is Utah. That's incredible. Like, <laughs> back your way into anything you want. Back your way into the Rose Bowl. I don't, I do not care. Like, you deserve it. But like when I'm comparing him to the extreme highest names on this list, I think that's my question. Uh, it, I think it would help for them because because last year was his highest uh, his highest ranked season since 2008 and since they've entered the Pac-12, they finished number 10. So they have they have a top 10 AP finish. Uh, they they didn't have one before that during his tenure there and like some of that's just like weird math right like they finished number 12 the year before that so it's not like they were bad by any means but i think that that's my question you know i'd love to see utah have a top five finish under kyle whittingham because i do think he's capable of it i do think the program is capable of it but like i mean he's obviously a miracle worker again number eight i think is like, I hope I'm expressing how much I love Kyle Whittingham and how good a job. Yeah, I, I kind of box you out when I have him two and you're like, OK, well, I don't know if he's two. It's like now I have to criticize Kyle Whittingham. And that's yeah, what I'm, what I'm trying to do. To you. Come on. Now. I know. I, I do think it's possible that he's just filling the vacuum in a down pack 12, which is sort of what Mark D'Antonio did at Michigan sure. State for a little while. That when Michigan was down before Harbaugh got it rolling and D'Antonio had that stretch of like, I think it might have been five out of seven years or something where Michigan State won double-digit games. And it was like, ah, is Mark D'Antonio the second-best coach in college football? And then probably in hindsight or whatever, it's like, no. But he really had them maxed out for a while there. So, And they, they beat USC twice. They beat Lincoln they Riley did. twice. Like, that they happened. beat early Lincoln Riley. Yeah. And so, But in a world where all we said it's like, oh, the Pac-12, they're not good enough to make the playoff. And then Kyle Whittingham's like, well, we'll be the best team in the Pac-12. That's fine. But they're still not a national force. So, like, I, I anyone who's like Doug, chill. I get it. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, but I also, I'll get, I'll list all my dings when I get to the guys down the list a little bit. So, who's number three for you? Number three for me uh, is Dabo Swinney. Obviously, two national championships was the consensus number two coach in college football for a great many years. It hasn't been his greatest two year run, obviously at Clemson University, but uh, I, I think that. You know, again, you go back and look at what this program was when he took it over and where he's taken it. Just unbelievable. And the fact, you know, because Clemson is, is a program, they obviously won one title in the 1980s, but this is not a consistently competitive program. Dabo Swinney was only the second coach behind Nick Saban to win multiple titles in the college football playoff era. Now, Kirby Smart has joined him, and, and that's part of why I have him number two now, but Clemson is not one of these programs. It is not Alabama. It's not Georgia. It's not that kind of program. Now, obviously, Georgia also hadn't won a title since the 80s. But I think that we can know the difference. Uh, I, I think that he's built this into something formidable. I think that he's changed Clemson's place, not just uh, year to year, but in the, the sort of state of college football. And I don't think that there's a reason that Clemson should be what Clemson is, except for the guy leading the program. Yeah, he's maximum Jonathan Smith. He's maximum yeah, Matt Campbell. Yeah. Like, what does this look like when you are sort of solely responsible for what your program has done, and then you do it at the highest level? The ding I have on Dabo, who I also have third, yes. we, we agree on this spot, is 
they had the consistency at coordinator for so long. I right, think there were questions right. about like how much of that was them. Was it Brent sure. Venables and, sure. and Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott? But I also give him a ton of credit for firing people and making a change and bringing in Garrett Riley. So if he had not done that this offseason, I might have Dabo lower. But that was like to me like, hey, I still got my fastball. I'm not afraid to shake it up. I'm not only loyal. Because when you look at what they have been, starting in the 2015 season, this is the football outsiders' year-end rankings for where they ranked on each side of the ball. Offensively, starting in 2015 up through last season, 13th, 2nd, 15th, 5th, 5th, 6th, 79th, 44th. So as much as I think we think about how important Brent Venables and that defense has been to Clemson's success – they fell off a cliff with DJ Uyunglele. And like that really, it, cause, and that's why I still, yeah, I'm third. It might just be they got caught in a weird spot with a quarterback who wasn't going to be Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson. It kind of threw him off for two years. So 77th and 44th the last two years compared to what they were offensively, it's terrible. Defensively since 2015, Football Outsiders final rankings. Eighth, sixth, second, second, third, sixth, third, 17th. Hmm. So even like so last year without Brent Venables, now now they're no longer top five. They're still seventeenth. They right. still had a lot of good defensive players, Miles Mur- Miles Murphy and Brian Brzee and everybody you saw get drafted this year. So they've got to replace that talent. Now you're not recruiting to Brent Venables. You got to see what's up there. But really, it was an offensive fall off. And if Cl- Cade Klubnick in year two and Garrett Riley as the offensive coordinator, I think when Dabo's that aggressive about it. And it's like, well, how are you going to fix your offense? He's like, well, I, try, I hired the best coordinator on the market, and I'm playing the guy who was the number one quarterback in his class who's a second-year college football guy. It's like, oh, okay. well, well, that seems like a pretty good st- solution. Like, good luck with that. Now, if it doesn't work, he's going to slide down this list. But for now, with what he's done and the willingness he's shown to keep his foot on the gas to fix stuff, I think third is exactly where he still deserves to be. Yeah, and and by the way, with that, I mean, you said the best coordinator on the market. Like, Garrett Riley wasn't even on the market, man. Like, he just won the dang Broyles Award as the best coordinator in college football. Like, look at Clemson going out and getting Garrett Riley to lead their offense. And Alabama had to settle for Tommy Reese, right? Like, that's crazy. That's true. That, that's that's crazy stuff. Um, no, I think that, that all, all that you said is right. I think the other part of this, too, is, you know, he gets a lot of credit for well, he or or he gets a lot of, I guess, uh, sliding for kind of being like, well, you know, his coordinators did everything. They were just always there. They never left. But like, why didn't they leave? Like, he's a big part of that. Right. He did a great job of building a strong staff culture, of building a strong team culture. I mean, Brent Venables had plenty of opportunities over the years, had some major power five offers and ultimately didn't leave until one of the blue bloods of college football left. Uh, or or uh, opened up and had an opportunity for him. He did not leave for just anything. Uh, Tony Elliott, you know, it was more of a timing thing than maybe it was a job opportunity, but he left for a Power 5 job. Just got left to go back to the state of Florida where he's from. Like, guys want to be a part of that staff and want to be a part of that staff for a long time. Now, I, I do think that Garrett Riley is probably in a cycle or two going to be a head coach. And, you know, so maybe Daba's going to have to deal with a little bit more turnover at that position. But... It is a testament to Davos Winnie, not a knock, that he consistently has great staffs and that people want to coach for him. 
Four and five, I went back and forth multiple times trying to figure out. Eh, no, uh, uh, I landed on Jim Harbaugh four. Who do you have four? I, I probably have the other guy that you were uh, debating with there, and that's Lincoln Riley four, and then Jim Harbaugh five. Okay, I have Harbaugh four and Lincoln Riley five, and I and, think and you're they probably are similar. Right, I, I'll say, I think that you're probably right. I mean, neither of them have gotten all the way there. They don't have national titles in college football, but. They really have established an identity. They have a way to win. I do think I, so my dings, my Harbaugh ding is these NFL dalliances that I don't think are great for Michigan football. It's not the end of the world. I thought the one last summer had a chance to really throw him off, but basically he wanted the Vikings job and didn't get it. And it did throw him off. They were maybe even better. Probably with less talent, they had a better season. So, Credit to that, but there's it's just it's just uh, slightly uncomfortable when it should be rolling. Now they're also recruiting really well right now, so that's maybe a small ding. For Riley, the ding is def- defense and what may be too much loyalty to Alex Grinch. If Lincoln Riley had been as you know, if he had made a a, a Dabo Sweeney move this offseason, like fired Alex Grinch and just went got the best off defensive coordinator he could find that wasn't even available, I might move him up. But I have questions about that side of the ball, and I think it's held him back. So that's why I went, because I think what Harbaugh has done with his staff has been extraordinary the past two years. And they both have a style of play. You both know, I think you know what you're getting when you go play at Michigan and USC, and it works. It has not worked for a trophy yet. But man, it works. That's why they're not number one. But I, it's almost a coin flip to me for Harbaugh and Riley. And we just happened to land one was heads and one was tails for us. I mean, come on. It's not fair, though. Jim Harbaugh has a whole development staff working for the Baltimore Ravens just to, to provide assistance for him and vice versa. No, but, but I think that he's – But Lincoln Riley, has, Lincoln Riley has his brother telling him how to run offense. I, I don't know. I, I think that they – their offense is just uh, – well, no, this is a conversation for a different day. But they, they run very different offenses. But uh, so I, I think that one of the things with Lincoln Riley is we know what he can do as an X and O's football coach. I mean, I think that you maybe maybe say that he's the best X and O's coach in America probably. Now, I think it's it's the maybe sort of program stuff that we have some slight questions about. But like – if you want any questions about his X and O's ability, he left Oklahoma, which went a, a 10 and 2 during his final season, and then they went 6 and 7 without him. Then he left for a program that went 4 and 8 the previous season and won, what, 10 games, 11 games? Like, he is a guaranteed 10 wins. He, no matter where he is, no matter what he's doing, no matter what roster he has, he is like the surest 10 win bet in college football right now. And the fact that he was able to pick up and leave, you know, we, we've had this conversation before, right? Uh, with, you know, there are, there are obviously those four teams when we first started this podcast that had made up 20 of the 28 spots in the college football playoff. I think that we are seeing now that it was not the university of Oklahoma. It was Lincoln Riley who had those teams in the college football playoff. And I think the fact that he was able to pick up so quickly and if Caleb Williams doesn't get hurt, then they're in the playoff, right? Like they're in the playoff. And it took a a wild two point conversion in the regular season game where they might have been in the playoff anyway. Uh, they would have potentially have been undefeated heading into the conference title game. So I do think that year two is going to be critical for him if they don't make the playoff this year. Which like this is, I mean, this is like absurd standards, but that's that's the game. 
if they don't make the playoff this year, then I think he drops. I, I think that this is a year that they have to make the playoff. But for what he was able to do in year one, the fact that he was able to build a roster on the fly like that. I mean, it's impressive, man. It is impressive to leave one job for another and see the first job tank and the second job soar. That is that is crazy stuff. I think it's nice to have an identity that is strong as as Jim Harbaugh and Lincoln Riley have it. When Michigan hired Jim Harbaugh, when USC hired Lincoln Riley, like they knew exactly what they were getting, and then it's happened. They've gotten that, and they've won with it. So I think I think those guys both deserve to be in our top five. We'll take another break here on the College Football Survivor Show, and then we'll come back, and Shahan will make people mad. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, back for our final four for each of us on this College Football Survivor Show. Shahan, we were talking about, like, where's the line? We've gone through your top five. Your top five is Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Dabo Sweeney, Lincoln Riley, Jim Harbaugh. You have Kyle Whittingham, eighth. We were talking about like where we draw the line here for a tier. Feels like we're getting to your line drawing. Who do you have sixth? Yeah, I, I think that the top five is probably what I would consider a tier. I mean, honestly, I'd probably, may, maybe the answer is actually that I'd have a top three tier and then maybe like a half tier underneath that with the next guys. Uh, but number six, I have Brian Kelly. I think that, you know, look, he has limitations as a coach. I think that they're well known, but a big one of them is recruiting. You know, he was not a great recruiter at Notre Dame. I think that even in just the time that he's left and Marcus Freeman has taken over, we've seen that Notre Dame is capable of more than what he was capable of. But he decided to go to a program that recruits itself and look at the results in his first year. They win the SEC West. They win uh, against Alabama in Baton Rouge for the first time. I think it was since 2010, I think, was was the stat. And with the roster, that's fine. With the roster, that's fine. They're not what they're going to be under Brian Kelly. They've continued to recruit at a really high level uh, because, again, this program just recruits itself. But. I, I am glad that Brian Kelly was kind of able to have this moment because he's done such a good job at Notre Dame for the past couple of years. This has been what he is. He's been a top 10 coach for a while at this point, but the opportunity to go to LSU to beat Nick Saban in his first season, to get that that monkey off his back of, uh, of you know, the whole, he can't beat the very top-ranked teams. Well, he can if he has a top-ranked roster, uh, I, I think was huge for him. And, you know, he's like probably the line, I'd say, of like the hyper elite group but i think he certainly is a no-brainer at number six in this conversation so i have him 10 okay and uh, i had like a multiple people it's like oh, who should be 10th here and then when i really thought about it and i had jonathan smith on that list i had james franklin you know i had a, I had a couple other people that i was trying to think about. I was like, no, it's it's Brian Kelly. So the one thing is, as you said, it felt like he he really took Notre Dame to a new place. But also it feels like they've, they've gone to another new level, potentially, now that he left. Which is like, okay, well, I don't, that doesn't... It hasn't happened on the field yet, I will say, though. It hasn't happened on the field yet. That, which is true. Like, we're assuming it's going to. But if Marcus right. Freeman brings in better recruiting classes and goes eight and fourth, then it'll be like, oh, Brian Kelly, we missed that guy. And I do think that the <laughs> roster building at LSU has been really good. Right, that he's worked the transfer portal. And as you said, LSU kind of recruits itself. And it feels like LSU is in for a really big season. And again, he won at every level from the jump, right? He, he worked his way up. 
and and really Grand Valley State this. legend, of course, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like this, this is a guy with a long resume who's trying to sort of cap it off with the national title at LSU because he didn't think he could win one at Notre Dame, but he elevated Notre Dame. So we do have to give him credit for that. But I have another guy sixth that we may as well have the conversation. I have Ryan Day sixth. And okay. and I am curious. And I have him 10th. Why should Brian Kelly be ahead of Ryan Day? Yeah, no, it, it's a good question. So so just to to talk on Ryan Day, right? I think that a big part of this conversation depends on how you view Ohio State. And I view Ohio State as potentially the single best job in college football. I think that when you talk about their infrastructure, I think when you talk about their investment, I think when you talk about, generally speaking, their pathway, I, I don't think that there is a program year over year that has it better than Ohio State. I think that they have built something that has lasted across multiple coaches. I think that they've built something, uh, and I'm not just talking the last three as well. You know, obviously the last two coaches won national championships, but I'm talking about for, you know, for the last 40, 50 years, they've been an elite program. They've never been bad. And so I don't think having good regular season results is that compelling to me because everybody has good regular season results at Ohio State because it's such a good program. Now, obviously, I think that especially in those first couple of years there, he had elite, elite regular season results, like all time regular season results. But I do have questions about the fact that in the past couple of years, the Urban Meyer players have kind of graduated out of the program and, and the team has gotten notably less good and not won the Big Ten. And part of that is Michigan coming up, of course. But I mean, again, like I, that's the bar for me at Ohio State is being in the Big Ten title game is winning the Big Ten. Obviously, they made the playoff this past year because they were able to back in because USC lost. But I don't know. I mean, it's really hard for me to place Ryan Day because I don't know necessarily that I'm confident that what he does is transferable. I know that he can do this thing at Ohio State at this program that recruit that also kind of recruits itself. But if you were to take Ryan Day and and the conversation, and, and I'm actually very excited that we're going to get to to see this up close and personal. You know, the the Lincoln Riley versus Ryan Day conversation when they're both part of the same conference. But, you know, when you talk about uh, Lincoln Riley, right, he takes a program to multiple playoffs, then leaves and immediately has a new program at 10 wins. If Ryan Day were to leave for Penn State, if Ryan Day were to leave for insert X program, I mean, I, it's definitely possible that, that he's able to just do that, that he can just like machine this way forward. But I have I, I just have more questions about it. I have more questions about how much is he protected by the Ohio State infrastructure versus how much is he elevating it? So how many playoff games has Lincoln Riley won? Uh, zero. <laughs> right. So Ryan Day's won more playoff games than Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley had a torpedo the program where a national championship contender with the Heisman favorite and the season explodes and he leaves situation, which, you know, I get it, but also like, it's not great. Ohio State, has made the playoff three out of four years for under Ryan Day. The previous four years, they made the playoff once under Urban Meyer in 15, 16, 17, and 18. So it's also like it's not a it's not a national championship standard at Ohio State, right? They went three decades between the last one they won in 68 and they kind of claim one in 70 and what they won in 02, right? 
But Jim Tressel and Urban Meyer both won national titles very early in their tenures at Ohio State, which just gives you a bunch of capital to work with. Ryan Day hasn't done that. I've been doing a lot of research for a separate pod that I'll do for the Ohio State pod I host called Buckeye Talk, where we've been researching Ohio State like history and big games compared to other programs. Ryan Day against top five opponents is two and five, which is sort of like, oh, well, it's like, well, what? It, so what are you doing? Well, they lost to Clemson in a semifinal in 19. Then they beat Clemson in a semifinal in 20 and then went and lost to a Bama super team in the national title game. So that's one and two. Then uh, I have it all. I have it all written down. And now <laughs> then they then they uh, they lose in 21 in the regular season to Michigan. Right. So that's one and three. Then they beat a top five Notre Dame team to open the 22 season. That's two and three. Then they lose to Michigan and lose to Georgia to end last year. So that's two and five. Then the five losses are all playoff teams, Clemson, Bama, Georgia, and two to Michigan. So Ryan Day's ding, he's lost his last two to his rival. And it's like, you can't, you can't do that. So like, I, I couldn't have him any higher than this. And I do have him behind Lincoln Riley, but it's, it is so similar to Lincoln Riley that they both inherited something from coaches that were winning. And then I think they both did, you know, at least Ryan Day's like sort of elevated Ohio State from what it was at the end, kind of, right? Now they, you know, Urban and 14, but like the last four years under Urban Meyer, they kind of couldn't get out of their own way with losing to Purdue and losing to Iowa. And at least Ryan Day's losing to good teams. So I don't think it's like a super crazy fight over how dare you have him 10, how dare you have him six. Like, I think we're both in the same range. I have him at the bottom of this, near the bottom of this tier. And to me, but to, so I asked about Lincoln Riley, the Brian Kelly thing. I don't know what Brian Kelly's ever done. If you say, well, Ohio State's an easier place to win than Notre Dame, and Brian Kelly maximized Notre Dame more than Ryan Day's maximized Ohio State, I guess there's an argument there. But also, three playoffs in four years is pretty good anywhere. And then when you get there, well, who are you losing to? I mean, if they make if they make the field goal against Georgia to end the game. And win the national championship, where's Ryan Day on this list? Now, you know, ifs and buts. So, of course, it's like, well, you can't not count that. You didn't lose. You lost. So, okay. But they competed. They were right there with the best team in college football. So, I'll be curious. Like, the other people you're going to have ahead of him at 10 is like, would you, for real? Like, if you were starting a program, <laughs> like, you really would take – your ninth guy and your seventh guy ahead of Ryan Day, like with his offensive acumen, and does I think he has established a culture. So, you know, it's not a huge deal. I, we're not that far apart because I don't think you can't have him in the top five right now. I just I, I don't think you can have him in the top five, even though he's made the final four three out of four years as the head coach. I, I mean, I think that what it I guess sort of comes down to for me is that the nine guys that I have ahead of Ryan day and, and you know, and, and people will disagree and frankly good. And, and I'd love for Ryan day to prove me wrong. Go win the national title this year. I thought that they were going to do it last year. I thought that they were the best team in the country last year, but I, I think for me, when I look at the top nine guys on my list, I see nine guys who have all built something from relative scratch, who have all built things on their own. And Again, it's, it, you can be the head coach at Ohio State and still win your way up, right? Like, it, it's not like you are destined to just be undervalued because you're at Ohio State. But they have. 
they have done things that weren't supported. Like, for example, I think that like Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day, I always used to have closer because Lincoln Riley did take over the Bob Stoops machine at Oklahoma. But, you know, I actually think that what he did this first year at USC is really validating of what I always felt about his ability to, to be transferable. And, and maybe that's the case. Maybe that's the case uh, for Ryan Day. But, you know, I, I get it. Like the standard in, in Ohio State maybe shouldn't be to win national championships. But when I've seen the rosters that they've had, it, it just it doesn't feel like they've done the thing that I feel like they maybe should have done. And this is all perception. This is all perspective, right? Like, but that's where we're at. It's also hard because when you evaluate all these coaches, like the roster that they have, well, Ryan Day shaped this new Ohio State roster. They didn't have quarterbacks like this before Ryan Day. So they didn't. he brought in Justin Fields. He recruited C.J. Stroud. He's going to be responsible for Kyle McCord and Devin Brown if they're good. So you do get some credit for that. I mean, again, I do think I understand giving Lincoln Riley credit for USC. I do think you have to ding him for driving Oklahoma off a cliff in, in this last year. Spencer Rattler implodes. He has to go to Caleb Williams. They lose to like the only two decent teams they play in the regular season. And everybody's like, oh, you're going to LSU. He's like, no, I'm not going to LSU. Shh. How dare you? And then it goes to <laughs> USC. So like, let's ask the people in Oklahoma. Ask the people in Oklahoma. How You want Lincoln Riley to build your program? He torched Oklahoma on the way out. I think that it might have, uh, you know, I, I think that maybe they feel a little bit bad, too, about the fact that Caleb Williams is no longer their quarterback until Gabriel is. But the other part of this, too, though, is that we just sat here and said, OK, well, maybe Dabo Swinney's program just whiffed on a quarterback and maybe it's a speed bump. I mean, <laughs> look at the guys other than Spencer Rattler who have come through there, right? Like Spencer Rattler clearly did not work out. He clearly did not work out. But 17, Baker Mayfield won the Heisman. 18, Kyler Murray won the Heisman. 19, Jalen Hurts finished second in Heisman voting. Uh, and then now Caleb Williams, who won the Heisman. So, like, like that looks like more of a speed bump than, than obviously, uh, you know, what, what we have elsewhere, right? I mean, he's been a coach for six years and four quarterbacks have won the Heisman trophy. That's pretty crazy stuff. Or, or three have won and one, one finished runner-up, sorry. And I don't think – and Ryan Day hasn't had a speed bump as the head coach yet because he's had Justin Fields, Justin Fields, CJ Stroud, CJ Stroud, right? So his speed bump might be now. Who knows? We don't know what the quarterback situation is going to be. But again, it's it's the right, as you said, I'm Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day in the same conference. Let's go. I think right, there's going to be a point, like once we get to 2024, this isn't going to be hypothetical anymore. They're going to play and they might play multiple times a year. So I think people are where they are on this. And it it's not, it's really the Jim Harbaugh argument about Ryan Day. It's the third base argument. It's like, okay, well, three playoffs in four years, but look at what you inherited, man. Come on. You know, couldn't a lot of coaches have done that when you inherit the Urban Meyer machine? So it just depends on your interpretation of that. All right. You have Kyle Whittingham eight, which means you have number seven left. I have Kirby Smart seventh. Who do you have seventh? I have Luke Fickle seventh. And he was a difficult one to place because, look, this was a list whenever uh, we did this for CBS. He, uh, you know, he was being a, a power five coach for the first time ever. And so I did have met number seven, though. Obviously, he took Cincinnati. He's the only coach ever and likely will be the only coach ever to take a group of five team to a four team college football playoff. He had an incredible run over two years. They lost to Alabama, but like at no point did they look 
like they didn't belong on the field by any means. Like Alabama had some explosive plays and won the game. It just happens. Uh, I think that you look at what he accomplished at Cincinnati. This is not just succeeding at a high level. This is succeeding at an unprecedented level, what he was able to do over there. Now he obviously goes to Wisconsin and it's going to be a good test for him. Again, he, he is somebody who I guess you could say to a certain extent is going to be like on ranking probation where we're going to have to see what he does early on. Not that they have to win big at Wisconsin in his first year, but you know, it's going to be a new challenge for him, but I, I mean, you can't ignore what he did for so many years at Cincinnati, taking it to a place where this program has never been. And, uh, and I think that he has enough of a track record at this point that he was uh, able to be number seven on my list. So I had Luke nine. And so I was like, ah, sure. is this a little bit too high? And it's like, you have him seven. CBS Sports has him nine. I think Luke is great. I agree with everything you just said. I am not a thousand percent sure that Luke would be the right guy at one of the five or seven best programs in the country. I don't know yeah. that that Luke at Bama or Luke at Georgia or Luke at USC or Luke at Ohio State would be the the best, would be the optimum thing. I He might be... Which I think you could say about Kyle Whittingham, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certain guys who are at a certain level, and you say, well, they feel so good there. D'Antonio in his heyday at Michigan State. Chris Peterson, they feel so good at where they are. If you took them to the highest profile place, would they would they be able to handle the pressure in the spotlight? Or are they perfect right in that next tier? And I wonder that about Luke. I think Wisconsin's a great fit. Super impressed by the Phil Longo hire, that he's going to try something new there. He is a defensive mind. I think he built culture. I think he builds all those things. I think it belongs in the top 10. It's one of those things, again, Ryan Day or Luke Fickle, you can hire one of the two. You're going to hire Luke Fickle? I'm a like, okay, I, I, I don't know <laughs> about that. But not much disagreement between us with Luke Fickle at seven for you and Luke Fickle at nine for me. Then the, the last guy for me is my number eight spot. You have your number nine spot, and I assume we have the same guy. Who do you have? I'm curious if we have the same guy. I have Chris Kleiman from Kansas State. Oh, no. Okay, now I'm curious about this. I had Sonny Dykes because he gets me the national uh, title game, and like I got to give a nod. Like, and I don't think this is a Gene Chizik. This isn't no. that TCU <laughs> run was not fueled by a single super player where Cam Newton would have dragged 50 different coaches to a national championship that year. That is a rare dude. There's a lot of Sonny Dykes. Scheme, motivation, leadership, gumption, culture, structure in that TCU season, and like the best season in TCU history. So like, where was Sonny on your list? Yeah, he's number 11. He's right, 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 okay. right there. Frankly, the only difference, uh, I guess you could say, between Kleiman and Dykes for me is one, I think that when you look at specifically what they did last year, I think TCU is an easier place to win than Kansas State. Uh, and the other thing, too, is that Chris Kleiman has more of a uh, has more seasons and more of a track record at the Power 5 level right now than Sonny Dykes does. Sonny Dykes obviously failed at Cal. Sonny Dykes is a really interesting conversation because I think that he was perennially undervalued because of his time at Cal. And uh, let's take a step back now. I think that Cal might just be maybe one of the worst jobs in college football. Like maybe it just sucks. Maybe it's impossible to win there. And the administration doesn't even care about whether you win there because put that aside, which he did win eight games, by the way, in 2015, he, he did have some good success there, but went to Louisiana tech, turned them into a program that they hadn't been consistently went to SMU, won their most games since 1983 
and then went to TCU and won 13 games for the first time in program history. So this is not this is not a fluke, right? This is a track record of success, of elevating programs, of getting them to the highest level. And, and I think that he deserves that credit for that. Again, the the only hesitation was that, uh, you know, obviously, first of all, Chris Kleiman beat TCU in that Big 12 title game. I think that certainly helps his case. But you know they they've uh, he's been the head coach over there for four seasons. Uh, two of them were eight and five seasons, so really really solid seasons. The the pandemic year was a little bit of a down year, and now I think we can kind of erase that because of what they did last year. And uh, and he's taken them back to national relevance. He had them in the Sugar Bowl. He had them as a top fifteen team in the country. And I think that he deserves to be talked about in that group. Now, if Sonny Dykes, especially after losing this sort of a uh, generation of TCU players does transition out and is still able to make a Big 12 title game, push for close to 10 wins, then I think that he pushes his way into the top 10 potentially. But right now, just because of the longer track record, I have Kleiman at 9 and uh, Dykes at 11. Kleiman won three national championships at a lower level. I, I always think, right, oh, like the place you were, how, were you the best? He's like, no, he was the best. Do you think he'll ever move up? Do you think that Chris Kleiman, before he retires, will be the head coach at Oklahoma or Florida or Penn State or something like that? Or do you think it's going to be more like a Bill Snyder? All right, I'm going to stay here for the rest of my career and for 20 years show people how good I can be at Kansas State. So he signed a contract extension through 2030, um, which I think is significant. Obviously, look, anybody can get out of these extensions if they have the right program buying. So... I think that if I had to bet, I'd bet on him staying. The big thing that I think you have to say is Chris Kleiman runs a really smart, tough developmental program. And is he going to recruit at that elite level? I don't necessarily know. The one thing I'd maybe keep an eye on is if one of the premier Big Ten jobs opens, right? Like, I'd be curious if Iowa came calling, right? Because, and, and I don't, I, don't know off the top of my head if Kleiman has any connection to Iowa, but this is a place where you can. He's recruit. from Iowa. He, okay, he there grew you go. up in Iowa. Yeah, so so you know it, this is a top twenty to twenty five uh, recruiting program that I think that you can still do your thing and you can still uh, you know sometimes to a painful extent have control over your own program, but I, I think that maybe that's the only sort of job that Chris Kleiman would consider. I don't think that necessarily he's going to end up at an elite blue blood or, you know, one of those types of programs, especially I think, you know, one thing, and I, <laughs> I you know, I, I feel like I reference my conversations with Dave Aranda a lot, but that's because he's like the most insightful person I've ever met. Uh, you know, Dave Aranda talked about coaching in the big 10 versus the sec versus the big 12. And, you know, with the sec, the sec is a talent acquisition league. It is a fill holes with recruits league. The Big Ten is a little bit more of a developmental league. The Big 12 is kind of a mix of the two. And you could tell that Dave Aranda hated being in the SEC for that reason. That's why I didn't really think he was a contender for the LSU job or any of those ilk. I think that uh, Chris Kleiman definitely airs more towards that Big Ten identity or that Big 12 identity than he does the SEC identity. So if Penn State, I mean, I don't know if it's too out of his wheelhouse, but, you know, if Penn State were to, I I don't know, something like that is possible, Um, you know, but I think that, if I had to bet, I think he stays at Kansas State. Yeah, he might be the leading contender to take over for Kirk Ferentz. Grew up in Iowa, played yeah, yeah. at Northern Iowa. That's right. That's coached right. at Northern Iowa. Then after the fact, like really might be the guy for that. Speaking of Kirk Ferentz, again, people know, whatever the deal. I do think Kirk Ferentz is driving Iowa into the ground for 
personal reasons. It remains remarkable what he's done at Iowa. There was a list that PFF put the up, out the other day of most players on NFL rosters. I think Iowa was eighth. Yeah. Like yeah. the development at Iowa. And the defense is so good. If they had a functional offense and that he's done it for this long is remarkable. But here at the end, he's choosing this kid over the program and like you can't <laughs> tolerate it. But like that is that's a huge ding. It's like, what's your ding? It's 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 the ding is coming from inside the house. The ding is at the Thanksgiving dinner table. But really, so like at times, you know, people can make an argument that Kirk Ferentz is top 10 coach. Jonathan Smith, I thought about. James Franklin, if we think Penn State's about to elevate. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. when I was doing that, like, hey, big game thing, I think James Franklin is 0-6 against top five teams. Like, it's not quite there, right? That at the highest, 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 he's, he's still a tier down from that but he's been pretty darn good for a long time. And then you can see people like what Mike Norvell is doing at Florida State. Florida State, by the way, just got Keon Coleman as a transfer from Michigan State. I thought the Florida State receivers were bonkers in the spring game. And it's like they added like maybe the best receiver in the transfer market. What he's doing, rebuilding Florida State, took a little time, like super interesting. You watch what Dan Lanning might be at Oregon that has a chance to really hit. We know we both like Kalen DeBoer at Washington. There are some good, you know, interesting younger coaches on the rise here, but also like we basically had the same guys. I had Chris Kleiman like on my mind. I don't think I'd had him of 11th. I might've had Chris Kleiman 16th or 14th or something on my list. Yeah. But there's like a pretty decent consensus here, Shahan, with how people view this. And I do, you think Saban, Smart and Dabo for most people at the top, because they have rings. And then that next tier of people, that gets you maybe to six or seven. And then you're at the sort of overachievers, at programs like Kansas State and TCU and Wisconsin and that kind of thing, but it's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of controversy. I don't think you know like let's see what Deion Sanders does in year one or two at Colorado because a lot of you know like he's making waves. I, I think I think it has a chance to hit. You can't you know it's like you can't. How would you even rank Deion right now? He has some success at Jackson <laughs> it State. Wasn't for sure, it wasn't easy. It wasn't. You can't. Like, how do you even go about it? Where did you have him? I, I don't even know. Like, what would you take into account? Yeah, I so I whenever I was trying to deal with some of these coaches uh, down the list, right, because there's a bunch of new coaches. I did credit, first of all, what he's done off the field, uh, the staff that he's hired, things like that. I gave uh, the coaches who haven't coached a game yet credit for that. Uh, and I also gave him credit for his uh, for what he accomplished at the lower level as well, because, you know, he turned Jackson State into a winner. And so I had him 54th, which is, you know, pretty high for a coach who hasn't coached yet. Uh, I, I, you know, he is somebody who, again, it's going to go one way or the other. And I'm very curious to figure out which it is. Um, I, I probably think that this first year is going to be a little bit of a disaster because I think they're just going to be figuring everything out. But I think he has a really good staff. Uh, you know, you mentioned coaches with rings. So I did calculate to figure out which coaches on the CBS list that I had like the most divergence from, I guess you'll never believe who is my uh, most divergent coach on the list. The coach that I had ranked much lower. That would be Jimbo Fisher. Oh, see, you are who you are. <laughs> like, were you also divergent on Sark a little bit too? I, I had him seven. I had him eight different spots, same tier. You know, I had him a little bit lower in the tier probably than other people did. But uh, but I had him. Uh, I had him at forty five. He ended up at thirty seven. I think we're about the same. But so my top three most overrated coaches on like uh, the CBS list versus mine, 
Jimbo Fisher at one. I had him 37. Uh, the CBS list had him 20. Hugh Freeze, I had him 42nd. The list had him 26th, which, I mean, come on, guys. 26th? And then th- this one really got me, actually. We had Lane Kiffin at 14, and I had him at 28th. What? Yeah, 14. Yeah, that seems high. Come on. That is that is. If, and if you had him at 28, that means some people must have had Lane Kiffin in the top 10. Oh, yeah. Like, y'all... I get it. Like Lane Kiffin's great. I think that he does some things really, really well. I think he's a great offensive mind. But like, come on, guys. Like, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> what is going on? Yeah, uh, actually, the funny thing was, I think he moved up like uh, like five spots after last year, which is weird because he he won two fewer games last year than he won the year before that. Like, he was a good coach at Florida Atlantic. He was an inconsistent coach at USC. He was an inconsistent coach at Tennessee. Like, people are reading too much into this, like, transformation of Lane Kiffin into being something than he's ever been. Like, he, he is what he is, man. Like, and, and it's pretty good. I, I get top 28 is a really good ranking. There's a lot of good coaches in college football, but, but 14 was insane to me. So referencing some of these names, I, I grabbed some other people off the list from the uh, top 100 coaches from September 2010, as done by <laughs> Shahan's friend from the chess club. Uh, 62, Dabo Sweeney, 62nd <laughs> best coach, 2010. 54, Jimbo Fisher. 48, Lane Kiffin at USC. 40, Tommy Tuberville. Hey, how'd it work out for that guy at Texas Tech at that time? 37, Steve Sarkeesian at Washington. Wait, if Tuberville's uh, at 40, where's Joe Manchin? Where's, uh, where's, uh, he is, where's Mitch McConnell? Uh, he's in the top 15. Yeah, okay, he's in the okay, top, top, 15. Uh, top 15. Steve Sarkeesian, 37 at Washington. Jim Harbaugh Stanford, 26. Kyle Whittingham, 24 at Utah. Guy's been a top 25 coach for a decade and a half. Number 19. Randy Edsel at Connecticut. What <laughs> oh, are God. we doing? Number 18, Greg Schiano at Rutgers, which actually at that time probably made sense. Number 14, Brian Kelly at Notre Dame. Number nine, Kirk Ferentz at Iowa. So, you know, some familiar that's, names, and then and sometimes you're just putting Randy Edsel in the top 20. That's interesting, actually, that, uh, that they ranked Brian Kelly that high that early because this was before his run to the national title game. You know, and, and he had success at Cincinnati. He had success uh, before this. But, you know, credit to them. I mean, they were on the right side of history when it came to Brian Kelly. You know, some of the coaches that I had on the other side who I felt like were underrated. Oregon uh, Oregon State, like I mentioned, I had Jonathan Smith 12. They had him 32. I had Matt Campbell 16. They had him 35. Uh, and then Kalen DeBoer, I had 17. They had him 31. I also, you know, somebody who I was really, I really kind of had a little bit of a hard time with, but I ended up going in that direction was Matt Rule. You know, Matt Rule, obviously, his time at Temple and Baylor was pretty incredible. And I, I don't think that you can count the NFL stuff. Like, you just, it's completely irrelevant to me uh, what happens at the NFL level. So I ultimately ended up slotting him at 15. We ended up putting him at 27, which I think is probably closer to right. But yeah, I don't know. He's a, it's interesting with, again, some of these first year coaches, even ones who have coached before, to try to evaluate what they're going to do at new programs. No, I mean, and it's this, it's the Saban model is a pretty good one to follow. It's like, oh, he won at LSU, but I don't know. The Dolphins thing was kind of okay. And it's like, oh, no, no, he's still a good college coach. All right. So the top 10, Shahan, 
Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Dabo Sweeney, Lincoln Riley, Jim Harbaugh, Brian Kelly, Luke Fickle, Kyle Whittingham, Chris Kleiman, and Ryan Day. Me, Nick Saban, Kyle Whittingham, Dabo Sweeney, Jim Harbaugh, Lincoln Riley, Ryan Day, Kirby Smart, Sonny Dykes, Luke Fickle, and Brian Kelly. Not that much disagreement, but we still had a nice conversation about it. We have some more good stuff planned. We appreciate you guys joining us twice a week. We've been going twice a week with the free show for a couple uh, months now. We used to have one behind a subscription wall. I, I I see the numbers. The numbers are ticking up a little bit. So if you're a new listener, thanks so much for trying us out. We try to put everybody in context, everybody in perspective. You know your team, but we're looking at everybody with a shot at the playoffs and trying to say, hey, where does this team measure up against this team? And we try to do that twice a week, maybe not 52 weeks a year, but like 49. We don't take that many breaks. So I appreciate you guys, whether you've been listening for a long time or whether you're just joining us for now. For Shahan Jeharaja, I'm Doug A. Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.